2 Timothy chapter 4. That's where we're at. We've been going through the book of 2 Timothy. If you're new here, we like expository preaching. I like expository preaching. So that, that really is verse by verse, phrase by phrase, sentence by sentence, just unpacking it. And we've been unpacking the book of 2 Timothy now for 14 weeks. Looks like we got one more week to go. So this is the 14th sermon in a long narrative that we have been working through together. And so if you're here for the first time, you're like, oh man, I missed the first 13 parts. Like, don't worry, I'll get you cut up to speed. So, so this is what you need to know. Just a little, little bit of background information, kind of what you've missed for the first 13 parts. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter sometime between 64 and 67 AD. He's writing this from a Roman jail cell. This is his second Roman imprisonment, and unlike his first Roman imprisonment, which would have occurred between 60-62 AD, which was more of a house arrest, he finds himself really at the end of his rope here. He anticipates, as we saw last week, dying soon. He's essentially on death row as he writes this. It's, it's a very bleak setting. In fact, this letter has often been referred to as Paul's last will and testament for that reason. Very bleak situation. And yet, despite as bleak as it is, the overall theme of this letter is one of rather encouragement. An encouraging tone is felt throughout this letter as he writes this letter to a young man named Timothy. A young man that he has discipled, a young man that he has mentored, a young man that he has poured into. He's invested so much into Timothy. And Timothy is a pastor at the church in Ephesus. That's modern-day Western Turkey. And Timothy's having some challenges of his own. Some ups. And some downs. That happens to pastors sometimes. Just as it can happen to a college freshman. That, that happens. We hit ups and downs. And, and if you're taking notes or you want to like the, the one like, the one phrase or sentence of what this is all comes down to, what this is all about, this book is about continuing. This book is about pressing forward. This book is about persevering in the faith no matter what. No matter how difficult, no matter how challenging it might get. And it does. And it is. It's hard. Oftentimes people think the Christian life is filled with cotton candy and butterflies and lollipops and rainbows and it's just not like that. It's hard. I mean, the guy's writing this is on death row, essentially. And not only is he on death row, but talk about discouraging. Well, by the way, back in chapter 1, He writes, Timothy, you're aware all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. Not only is he facing impending death, but people that should be there, people that should have his back, don't. They've left him. If you're here today and you've ever felt let down, or disappointed in someone you know, a friend, whoever, family member, you've ever felt let down or disappointed by them, you picked a good day to come today. Because when we hear stories about things that we're dealing with, when we hear stories about circumstances that are very fresh to us, it has a way of just piercing right through everything else. And that's... That's where we're at today. So that's my brief introduction. Now we'll begin part 14 of this series, chapter 4, verse 9. He says this, Do your best to come to me soon, 
Do your best to come to me soon. Timothy, come quickly. There's a little bit of an urgency here. Now, when Timothy is given this letter, he comes, he says here, here's the letter. Timothy gets the letter, opens it up. Assuming he would have left within the hour, it would have taken him nearly three to four months to travel from Ephesus to Rome. And while Paul expects to depart soon, as we saw last week, that's the the word he used, he at least expects to be alive long enough, or at least he hopes to, by the time it would take Timothy to get there. Three to four months. He wants Timothy to come, and to come quickly. And, And the why is slightly explained in the next verse. Why? Why this urgency? Why come to me soon? Verse 10, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, Luke alone is with me. So this reveals at least part of the reason for why he wants Timothy to come quickly and see him. Because other than Luke, everyone else has left him. Other than Luke, everyone else has left him. Now, as we'll see in a second, some reasons appear to be honorable. But the focal point here, I don't think, is the honorable reasons as much as they are the dishonorable reasons. And of course, Demas is front and center. Demas, in love with this present world, he's left, he's deserted me, he's gone to Thessalonica. You say, what? what's in Thessalonica? I don't know. A girl? Yeah, maybe there's a girl in Thessalonica there. A relationship? A job? Home? Comfort? Maybe. Maybe all of the above. But what seems clear here is that Demas was reluctant to face and to endure the difficulties of following Christ. It's very, very difficult. Many Christians, historically, we know that they fled from the capital city, from Rome, during the persecution of Nero, which, by the way, Nero is the emperor right now. At, At least, especially in Rome, it is not exactly a good time to be a Christian. Maybe Demas started feeling this pressure. I mean, a lot of people that are willing to sign up and be a Christian so long as things are going well, so long as life is easy. But the reluctance that he has, the, the love for the world he has, is very reminiscent of the parable of the sower. If you're familiar with that, I'll, I'll remind us. When the sower goes, he sows the seed, and some falls along the path, it's snatched up. Some, it falls among the rocks and the thorns. And though it falls among the rocks and the thorns, he says, those are like those, who, those, are like those people who, at first, they receive the gospel with great joy. Right? Those are like the people who, at first, receive the gospel with great joy. The lights, the fog machine. The pastor just told this emotional story. Everyone's crying their eyes out. They're, they're waving their hand. They're walking the aisle. They're rededicating their life. And then what? Well, if you know the story, you know that Yeah, at first there was a, a response, but there wasn't any good soil. It was the rocks and the thorns, and you know soon enough, soon enough, they'll get choked out. 
because they're not planted in the good soil. They're not planted in the good soil, despite maybe an initial appearance, initial decision, initial commitment. They are like Demas. They are fair-weathered disciples. They're fair-weathered disciples. Why? Because Jesus says those planted among the rocks and the thorns, they, when time of testing comes, or tribulation comes, or difficulty comes, or because of the cares of this world, of which they love, they don't take root. They're not really Christians. Despite that momentary decision, which is all the more reason, I think this is week three, George Whitfield, I love his response. How many people got saved, Whitfield? After you preach, we'll see, right? Why? Because I don't know what sort of soil they're planted in. Drives me nuts when people say, oh, all these people got saved last night. I'm just like, you, there's no way to know. You don't know whether they're in rocky soil, thorns, or good soil. Man, there's nothing wrong with saying, I don't know. There's nothing wrong with that. Drives me nuts in this papal-like Vatican way. We just pronounce people saved, and then they think, oh, I'm good to go. Absolutely, utterly ridiculous. Nothing wrong with saying, we'll, we'll see, right? Is it going to be an apple tree or an orange tree? Well, if you had no idea, you probably might not know. You'd be like, I don't know, we'll see in a couple months. Like, we'll see. Like, like that's what we would say. But when it comes to modern-day evangelism, we don't, I don't know if we don't have the patience for that or, or what. We really need to stop doing that. Because... Sooner or later, I mean, it becomes clear, right? Well, well, let's wait. Let's see what sort of soil they're planting. Because you know what? This happens. Demas, right? He was following for a while. But it's clear. It's clear he's just a fair-weather disciple. It's clear that he hasn't counted the cost. You know, I've been to a lot of church services. The pastors, oftentimes, they love to talk about faith. And, of course, faith is an important thing, right? For without faith, it's impossible to please God, Hebrews says. Right? We're saved by faith alone, Paul says in Ephesians 2. Like, faith's important. But oftentimes, while I'm hearing them talk about faith, I never hear any mention of repentance. Oh, that's a biblical concept, too. Or counting the cost. Counting the cost, yeah. And like a used car salesman, I hear many pastors today only conveniently talk about the benefits of following Jesus while leaving out the fine print that, yeah, you might need to count the cost because it might get hard and persecution might come. That's what Jesus says. Luke 14, verse 25. Luke 14, verse 25. Now, great crowds accompanied him, him being Jesus. Great crowds, because at this point in his ministry, he's super popular. Now, great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Then, as if that wasn't enough, he says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. An instrument of torture and death in the ancient world. It'd be like saying, unless you come with that electric chair, with that lethal injection, 
ready to say goodbye to your life? You can't be my disciple. Now we would say, hold on, Jesus. Jesus, if you keep saying things like that, you're going to have a lot less people filling out decisions cards and getting saved tonight. Okay, Jesus, I I get this evangelism thing is new to you. There's an online class that you can take. It's eight weeks long, or there's a one-week intensive format. We can get you enrolled in that. But you've got to stop saying these things because you're saying really crazy things. And you've already got this huge popular following, but it's not going to keep increasing Like if you say really, really hard things like that. Jesus, that's what Jesus says. Or which of you, he goes on to say, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he is able to finish. Otherwise, he is not able to finish. All who see it begin to mock him, saying, see, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or, which king, going out to encounter another king in war, does not first sit down and deliberate? Whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000, and if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus demands total allegiance. Jesus doesn't have room for fair-weather disciples like Demas. He's not interested in fair-weather disciples. He's interested in people who are going to count the cost. Right? These are the really, really heavy things that Jesus says. Like, you can't be a follower of Christ unless you're prepared to say goodbye to those relationships. Hating your father and mother. And of course, the call to hate is a call to love everyone less than Jesus. Or a builder. Builders think through things. I mean, usually I mean, usually builders don't just start nailing stuff up. They're like, okay, how much is this going to cost? How much inventory do we have? What do we have to pay people? Because the last thing we want to do is build something, get halfway done, and we're going to be a laughing stock of the whole town. Or, you know, think about kings or generals going out to war. That's a big, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. Why? Because people's lives are at stake. We've got to realize, okay, we've got these many fighting soldiers, we have this many support troops, they're going to acquire this many meals, they're going to need this many supplies, this much ammunition, they're going to need all these different things, right? So we can probably afford to pay the army and buy the provisions for this many months. Oh, by the way, that's just how long we have to keep the army up and running. Do we even have the ability to defeat the other army? Because if not, we've got to figure this out because people's lives are at stake. Like, think through this. Count the cost. Count the cost. And of course, people say, well, how do you count the cost if you don't know how much it's going to be? That's a good question. I'll steal a little from the recent APJ episode this week, last week on this very topic. How do you count the cost if you don't know how much it's going to be? I mean, you go, you're, if you're on Amazon, and I mean, who doesn't like Amazon? It's, it's the, like the Sears Roebuck of 100 years ago. I mean, this is, everyone loves Amazon. You count the cost, right? It's right there. Like, it's your shopping cart. That much, that much, that much. How do you count the cost for something like this? How do you count the cost for something that doesn't necessarily have a price tag on it? And the answer is, you assume that the cost is total. You assume that the cost is total. 
You want to be a follower of Jesus? Okay. You assume that's going to cost you all your possessions. You want to be a follower of Jesus? You assume that that's going to cost you your relationships. The relationships you have with your friends and family, you assume that's going to cost you those. The relationships you want, maybe single people, yeah, you assume that, you assume that it's going to cost you the relationships that you want. It could potentially cost you your life. No negotiation. See, disciples of Jesus are all in, unlike Demas. You say, well, and that's, that's a little bit different than this cheap grace, easy believism, say this prayer, ask Jesus to come into your heart theology that I have been hearing since the time I was five years old. Yep. What is this called? The Bible. There is no cost that we can pay. You say, what if it costs us our lives? It might. It might cost us Sia Bibi her life right now on death row in a Pakistani prison. Yeah, it might. You might get shielded for it for a while, Americans. Maybe. But oh, by the way, there is no cost that we can pay that won't be made up at the resurrection. You say, what if it costs us our life? What if we have to pay everything? There is no cost that you can pay that won't be made up at the resurrection at the end of the day. Having Jesus is gain. That's why Paul says, I count everything as rubbish as compared to knowing him. Why? Because he's better. He is. He's better, right? And true disciples of Jesus, they know that. They know, even if he takes my life, that's okay. Fair weather disciples like like Demas, they don't see it that way. They're like, okay, I'll follow Jesus just so long as I get what I want or just so long as I don't have to endure persecution. And the second it comes, it's like, nope, not for me. I'm out of here. See, true disciples of Jesus get it. And they know that even if they pay the total cost with their life, that there's no cost that they won't be repaid tenfold at the resurrection because Jesus is simply better. Demas, who loved this world, he went back to Thessalonica. I wonder, what was in Thessalonica, right? Or rather, what might be in our Thessalonica if there was that one thing that might keep us from total allegiance, from total commitment to following Jesus? If there was that one thing, what would it be? I talked to a guy today after the chapel service. He said, honestly, if I was being honest, if I was being real, my Thessalonica, it would probably be girls. Just, if there was one thing that just wedged itself in there and prevented, like, my total allegiance, total commitment to really following Jesus, that's what it would be. For other people, it might be finances or money or careers or whatever it is. Jesus demands total commitment. Jesus demands total allegiance. Jesus isn't looking for half-hearted disciples to come and follow him, which is why Demas is... I would say, such a classical example of so many people within the quote-unquote church today. But then again, not everyone is like Demas. Some of these people left like Demas for dishonorable reasons. Demas, the Asians back in chapter 1. Not everyone. As we see here, he says, Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. We don't know much about this guy named Crescens, except 
He went off to Galatia. But he didn't flee. He, Paul doesn't say that he deserted him. Not at all. I think it's fair to assume that he, like Titus, who, by the way, there's a letter written to him, was a faithful disciple, who, while they left Paul, they left for a specific reason. One that Paul probably commissioned them on. And then he says, Luke alone is with me. Luke alone is with me. So much to say about Luke. He's such a great guy. He's mentioned three times in the Bible. That's it. Just three times. Even though by content, by, by sheer content, writes a vast majority of the New Testament when you take into consideration the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. But let me just say this before I, I say anything more about Luke. This is the sort of guy, this is the sort of friend we need. This is the sort of friend we need, and this is the sort of person that we should aspire to be. The sort of friend we need, the, the sort of person we should aspire to be. When you read the book of Acts, most commentators believe when he uses the first person plural pronouns, such as we, us, and our, it's an indication that at that present moment, he's, he's with Paul. So if you're reading through Acts, or next time you read through Acts, look for those. When you see we, us, our pop up, most, most scholars believe that in those moments he's actually with him. In which case, we can retrace just the very steps of this loyal guy, Luke. Luke would have been with Paul at Troas and at Philippi during his second missionary journey. Luke would have joined him again at the end of the third. Luke would have gone with him to Jerusalem to face arrest and imprisonment. Luke would have accompanied Paul on the trip of Rome after he appealed to Caesar to hear his case. He would have been with Paul on the ship that was shipwrecked off the shores of Malta. He would have been with Paul during his first first Roman imprisonment, and Luke would have been with him right now as he writes during his second Roman imprisonment. This is the sort of friend we need. This is the sort of friend we should aspire to be. Luke is so loyal. And Luke's, some of you guys who have friends, right? And they're convenient friends. They're fun friends. They're the friends you can go watch a sports game with. They're the friends that you can, you know, have, you know, light superficial conversations. But Luke's the sort of guy, I imagine, that you can have real conversations, right? Where you talk about sin. You talk about temptation. You pray together. Like, we all need Luke's. Luke's the sort of friend who comes around even when it gets difficult. Think about just I'm getting shipwrecked off Malta. I mean, you read the book of Acts. The ship was tossed around for two weeks prior to that. I mean, these guys are probably puking their guts up. And then the ship crashes on Malta. They're having to jump overboard, then swim to the shore. Luke's not just a friend who's only there so long as it's convenient. Be that guy. Aspire. God, help us to be like Luke. Then he says, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me. We'll talk more about this guy Mark in detail in the coming weeks. But Mark, otherwise known by John Mark, He's got a little bit of a history with the Apostle Paul. They've known each other 20 plus years. And it hasn't always been a very good history. In fact, Mark hasn't exactly been the sort of friend that Luke has been. 
And it's really easy to idolize these people, so we go, okay, Luke is on this pedestal. Maybe that's how it feels after the last two minutes. Mark, not so much. And, and I say, be careful, guys, just because your friend might not be a Luke right now, just to throw them out. Okay, don't, don't make that mistake. That, okay, well, he should be a Luke. He's not. They're out of here. Hold on a second. Because if that was the case, this guy's name wouldn't be brought up. In fact, if you read in the book of Acts, especially chapter 15, Paul is furious and ticked off with John Mark because back in Acts chapter 13, John Mark deserted him. Don't know what happened, but he did. He deserted them. There is a place for forgiveness for the Christian. We have good friends who sometimes let us down. And those friends can still be good friends someday. Hear hear me. We have friends, especially in ministry, who can let you down, and they can still be good friends someday. They can still be good friends eventually. And that's really good news, especially in those moments when... We're not exactly Luke-like in all our endeavors. There is room, there is a place for forgiveness. Because John Mark has, he's deserted Paul before. Scripture doesn't say what happened to Demas. There's no other positive mention after his desertion, unlike John Mark. But I think that's important. I think that's important as we strive to be like Christ, as we strive to endure the really, really hard times. And then he says this, Tychicus, or Tychicus, or Tychicus, I've heard it pronounced all three ways. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. I like to think of Tychicus as the faithful postman. Some of you guys, you've got some faithful postmen. It's like always running their route, dropping off the mail dropping off those packages from Amazon. They're like your favorite person to see. That's how I think of Tychicus. He is the faithful courier. He's a native from the province of Asia, according to Acts 20, verse 4. But more than that, we know from Colossians 4, 7, and 9, as well as Ephesians 6, 21, that by all probability, he delivered both of those letters. The letter in your Bible, the one written to the Colossians, the one written to the Ephesians, Tychicus was the one carrying it. Hundreds and hundreds of miles to his recipients. Tychicus I've sent to where? This is not a rhetorical question. Thank you. Who's in Ephesus? Yeah, Timothy's in Ephesus, right? Tychicus Tychicus has been sent to Ephesus. Timothy is in Ephesus. By all accounts, it would make a lot of sense if the very letter that we're reading was carried by Tychicus. He was the one that knocked on the door and said, hey, Timothy, here's, here's, this letter is from Paul. Like, hot off the press, here it is. He is the faithful courier. And whether carrying these letters is a big deal or a small deal, regardless of that, because I think what we see is someone who is just constant. See, we're seeing all these different characters, right? We're seeing the Asians back in chapter 1, verse 15. 
the Phygelus, the Hermogenes, we're seeing the Demas, these guys who are not faithful, and now we're seeing, right, the Lukes, and the Crescents, and the Tituses, and, of course, the Tychicuses. Then he says in verse 13, when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. This is where it got really interesting for me. So when Timothy comes, he says, Timothy, bring my stuff with you. Which, of course, raises the question is, is why doesn't he have his cloak with him? Like, I mean, that, you can almost hear my mom, like, where's your jacket? Like, where's your hat? Like, where's your cloak, dude? Like, I mean, why doesn't he have his cloak? Why doesn't he have his books? Why doesn't he have his parchments? Maybe, maybe, maybe he just, it was too big of a hassle to carry. But think again, from our perspective in 2018, it's not like, well, I flew out to my mom's in Olympia, Washington back in December, and I'm like, oh, I've got too much in my suitcase, I'll just have her ship some stuff. Or it's not like I've got two-day Amazon Prime. I mean, to be separated from these things, it would seem strange that it would be done voluntarily. Why does he not have these things? Why, why does Timothy need to pick them up? Now, I'll first say this, all of these items would have been very expensive items, which only adds more to the mystery of why he might have been separated from them in the first place. The, the cloak would have been kind of like a poncho-like heavy woolen garment. At that time, it would have been the Columbia, it would have been the North Face, it would have been very expensive, would have kept him pretty warm. Uh, the books, the parchments, the same thing. When we think of these things, okay, we have, I mean, there's tons of books, parchments around us, um, more or less, but these would have been very expensive at this time in the ancient world. The books... People surmise that perhaps they contained Old Testament scripture, that perhaps the parchments were for him to write future letters, or maybe they were already things that he had started working on. We just don't know. But of course, it just comes back to this mystery of why he might have been separated from them. And I think by all indications, we have to say that it most likely was not done voluntary, that this was an involuntary separation. So why did it happen? The next verse, I think, is going to be at least one clue for us as we perhaps attempt to historically reconstruct this gap in the story as best as we possibly can to make sense of this. And so he says this, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. I think it's a big clue right here. He did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. The identity of who Alexander the coppersmith is a mystery. We can guess. I'll throw some names out there and ideas of who this man who caused him great harm and hurt him very much, who this might have been. In Acts chapter 19.33, there is a mention of a little-known Ephesian Jew named Alexander. But Gordon Fee believes that the Alexander here is the same Alexander mentioned in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20. The same Alexander who was mentioned in a not-so-good way back in 1 Timothy chapter 1, 1 Timothy that was written a few years earlier, who came under church discipline along with his buddy, Hymenaeus. Gordon Fee believes, as he historically reconstructs the story, that Alexander, after receiving church discipline, went to Troas, and while at Troas, reported somehow, some way to the authorities about Paul, Thus, getting Paul apprehended, tossed in prison, and his personal property being seized and taken. Now, I thought that was interesting. 
is that what happened? I don't know. I don't know. It certainly would make sense of the involuntary nature, which I think is probably most plausible as far as his possessions go, but we can't say with certainty that's the same Alexander, and of course, that's speculation. But it's, it's interesting at the very least, but the big takeaway from this is the fact that this guy Alexander has hurt him. Some of you guys have friends who've hurt you. Fast boyfriends, best girlfriends, family members, roommates. You've had people that have hurt you, that have betrayed you, that have maybe jerked you around, they've been emotionally reckless, reckless. maybe they've been physically abusive. And they've, like Alexander the coppersmith, they've done great harm to you. And I think some of you might feel even helpless, especially in those moments because you feel like you might have no recourse. Right? They, they hurt me so bad, and there's really like, like no recourse. Like no one would believe me if I even mentioned what they did. And I, I, there's nothing I can do about that. It's a helpless feeling. But this is what I want you to notice. This is what I want you to see. He says, he's done great harm to me, verse 14. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Very Old Testament-like. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. I got it. I know what happened. Yeah, no one else on the earth knows what happened. Maybe, maybe you've had this, this hurt, this pain, and, and to make it more difficult on top of it, it's been held secret, and you haven't told anyone about it. That's okay. That's okay. God knows. God's going to take care of it. And I'm thankful for that. I'm so thankful for that because you've got to think how hard this is, especially when you think about the, really the theme of this letter about facing persecution. I mean, facing impending death. And oh, by the way, people who were supposed to have your back, they don't. People who were supposed to be there for you, they're not. Like how much more, just at the very least, emotional pain on top of trying to follow Jesus how much more difficult it is those people that have hurt us, some of those people that continue to hurt us. But he says, Timothy, don't worry about it. God knows. God's going to take care of him. I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful in knowing this and seeing this. Listen, I don't want anybody to walk out the door and miss this tonight. Oftentimes we love to celebrate only certain attributes of God like, like, yeah man, let's give God a clap because he's such a loving God. I'm like thankful that he's such a just God. He's so just and he's good. He's so fair. He's so righteous. And I'm thankful. I'm so thankful. Right? In those moments when you feel like you have no recourse and you feel helpless to know this, that he says, vengeance is mine. There's no one who does anything that gets away with anything. Timothy Alexander, the coppersmith, he hurt me so bad. I've got no recourse. I'm, I'm in a jail cell set to die. But God's going to deal with him. 
Guys, we have such a big God. Don't miss these other attributes of God. You say, I don't know. I feel like we can celebrate and be super excited about like his love, but I don't know if we can be excited about his justice, his fairness, his sovereignty, his rule. Why not? For have you not heard that it was said? When the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. Why? Because in and of itself, we like justice. We like fairness. That's why Solomon says, when the righteous increase, when the righteous govern, the people love it. They rejoice. They're happy, right? You can be happy about more than just God's love. It's okay to celebrate more than just one attribute of God. And man, do we need to, especially in this Christian life, one that's not filled with candy canes and butterflies and lollipops, one that's terribly, terribly hard. How am I supposed to endure through some of the things I'm going through? Listen, apart from seeing God as big as He really is, I don't think you can. So I said, don't miss this. You miss this? Yeah, I don't know how you're making it through the next week or month or whatever. I don't, I don't know how, apart from this and knowing this, that Paul would be able to make it another day there on death row in Rome. Knowing that, yes, he's a loving God, but man, he's a just God. He's a fair God. Sometimes you see that, right? In the news, maybe you'll see someone, they've been mistreating or abusing other people, and then finally they get caught, and then the judge sentences them, and you feel joy. You feel joy. There's nothing wrong with feeling joy. There's nothing wrong with rejoicing in these moments. There should be no objection to a Christian's approval of God's right to punish the guilty. For if he is God, the moral governor, the righteous one, There's no objection we have to have. This is something to be happy about, to take joy in. I don't know where you're at today. I don't know if you're the person and you've just had one too many experiences with Alexanders who've just hurt you and continue to hurt you and you feel just damaged i don't know if just you're at that point look to god and see how big he is yes look at his love but look beyond that to a hundred other attributes i don't know if you're like demas and you're the fair weather disciple don't be don't be Understand that he's better. Understand that he's better. Anything you give up in this life will be given back to you tenfold in life to come. See him as better. That's the difference. That's that's the bottom line difference. Why Why does Demas go to Thessalonica? Because he doesn't see Christ as better. There's something else stealing his heart. There's something else playing and, uh, and vying for his allegiance. Why? At the end of the day, because Christ isn't enough. It's not, he's not better. 
Listen, I don't know where you're at today, but I'm pretty sure that this story has enough application to help each and every one of us. So as the band comes up, I want to pray for us. Lord, we love you so much. God, help us to be like Luke. I don't want to be like Demas. I want to be like Luke. I want to be constant. I want to be loyal. God, I pray also for those of us who honestly, maybe there's some forgiveness that needs to take place. I mean, even John Mark, I mean, screwed up royally, and yet there seems to be a place, even in those moments when we have people in our lives who aren't the Lukes that they should be, to forgive them. I pray that we would not breeze over who you are. That we would take hope and confidence even when we're mistreated, we're treated like garbage to know that no one's getting away with anything. The people that have a Siababi locked up on death row right now, they're not getting away with anything. Lord, help us not to miss it. Help us not to miss it, to miss who you are. To see the God that Paul paints in this story for us. Help us, Jesus. Help us to be faithful. Help us to count the cost. Help us in those moments when we want to flee to Thessalonica. Protect us, God, from those temptations that that lure us away from you. In your name we pray, amen.